At the beginning of discourses, some of the strangest things float into my mind, and tonight was one of them. The line that came into my mind, spoken by an old colleague some 25 or 30 years ago, she said, mind is a tricky bastard. Why did that line come into my mind tonight? I, I think it's because the, uh, the process at which we come to terms with our mind in some ways requires that we turn the tables on it because it will do anything, absolutely anything to entrance us into, uh, into one, believing what it says, and two, searching for our sense of well-being anywhere but here. And it, it does it in such convincing manner, in such a tricky way, that it requires a certain kind of strength of heart, strength of mind, all of the ingredients that we are putting into our, our soup of mindfulness uh, because it, it has, um, it's a tricky bastard. So I wanted to title this, I've, now I have a new title, <laughs> Mind is a Tricky Bastard. No, actually the new title, the, the title for this evening's talk is The Cure for Pain is in the Pain, which is really that process in which we turn the tables on the various movements of our mind that when unnoticed cause us suffering. And how when we be begin to make those very causes of suffering the object or focus of our attention, those very experiences become the seed causes of our sense of well-being. Already, you are experiencing over the course of two days. Probably, how many, for how many of you does it feel like you've been here endlessly? <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? We're asked to do this simple activity of just be here. It's really only six experiences happening. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, sensing the body, thinking. But it seems like this profound drama that's taken place in the last two days. Now, in one way, nothing's really happened. A lot of nothing, as we've been <coughs> saying. But yet, the way that our mind frames it, it has been high drama from, from the moment we got here. But in all, uh, in just in fairness to our, to our um, conditioning, we, we are so um, at the effect of the habits of our mind that, uh, that what we experience when we come here is, is that chronic framing of reality, chronic experience of reality seen through the lens of memory and then through the, through the lens of plans. And it just creates that felt sense that there is, there's a high drama going on, when really it is just those simple six moments, six experiences. And of course, it is not easy to stop. It is really, when we congratulate you, as I will again tonight, for making it through the second day. Sometimes the second day is even swampier than the first, to use uh, Mary Grace's metaphor that she used yesterday. Our bodies are, as you can see, even though six experiences happening over and over, our bodies from the course of our lives are stressed. Our bodies are exhausted. Our vital energy is diminished. There's tension. So all of that is not easy to bear. It's, so in fact, you're having insight 
into what the Buddha called the first noble truth. Not just a difficult time, but actually insight into the human condition. It's painful being human. It's painful not getting exactly what you want. It's painful not wanting what you get. Did any of you have any of that today? Now, did you ask for any of those experiences? Of course not. You, feel, you begin to see how relentless this conditioning is that plays through our mind. And in some way, uh, it, it comes completely unbidden. Yet there is a very strong tendency to take it very personally, as though we believe that there's some little person in there saying, now make myself miserable. But it just happens. It happens according to conditioning. And this is, this is not an invitation for judgment, but what you experience is the fruit, not just of being human, but the fruit of what you have practiced. We have all been practicing from the time we were born. What we've been practicing primarily is what the Buddha called the three root causes of suffering. Greed, grasping, hatred, aversion, ill will, and delusion, confusion, ignorance. Padmasambhava put it this way, not just in terms of the greed, hatred, and ignorance. He said, if you want to understand your past, look at your present condition. If you want to understand your future, look at your present action. So there's a few things in this passage that, that I actually like. It, the first part, if you want to understand your past, look at your present condition. It reminds me of what I experienced is the result of seeds that were planted, most of it unknowingly, most of it uh, ignorantly, most of it as a result of what we might call non-personal causes, our parents, our culture, culture, very strong habits, different ways that we were treated very innocently. We planted certain seeds and we experienced the fruit of that as we sit here. But nevertheless, it is lawful that we experience what we do. It's not an accident. It's meant to be this way. How do we know? Because this is how it is. The second part, if you want to understand your future, look at your present actions. It reminds us that this moment here, every moment here, every single moment, from the time you wake up in the morning until the time you go to bed, and this is through the totality of our lives, but every single moment is an open, creative, a field of creative possibility. Every moment of itself, this one right here, is completely empty. It's an empty slate. And depending on what gets added to this moment, what seed gets planted, what you do with it will determine to some degree what becomes your future present moments. And I'm reminded of a passage from the Buddha where uh, he said that if it was not possible for you to train your mind, to come to terms with... Well, actually, the passage I wanted to share first was the Buddha's line, whatever one frequently thinks about, dwells upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. That's another way of saying this is whatever seed you plant right now becomes the inclination of your mind, what you're experiencing. But as we come to a retreat, we all have that urge to plant some really wholesome seeds, but it's hard to bear and it seems like it's swimming against the stream as the, as the metaphor that's often used. But the Buddha then says, if it was not possible for you to do this, I would not ask you to. That every one of us has this capacity 
to plant seeds, to incline our mind toward that which brings us a sense of well-being, that helps reduce, as Mary Grace was speaking last night, reduce the experience of suffering. And it depends on what seed you plant, what you do with it. Already, over the course of two days, it's easy to overlook this, but I know for me, sitting here with you, you may have some stuff going on, but you are so much less restless. You are quieter, even if you have a lot going on. There's stillness. There's likely been moments and glimpses of calm. Probably a sense that you're not quite as cut off from the flow of life, a little bit more in the groove. Now that's not an accident. It's because of these simple moments of planting seeds. Two of the seeds that you plant are miraculous, and we have them within our own minds. They're the capacity of our mind, the very mind through which you're perceiving right now, allows you to hear this talk, allows you to bring your attention to this talk, and then to stay with it. Regardless. And that quality, the Buddha called, well, there's, the, there's Pali words for it. I don't even need to include those tonight. But it is this capacity to gather our attention. And this is the same thing we're doing with the breath, same thing we're doing with sensations when they become predominant, the same thing we're going to do as the retreat goes on with the states of the heart and states of mind, whatever it is that's predominant, we gather our attention to that vital point, the reality of what's happening, and another quality in our mind, the capacity to sustain that connection. Does that seem like something that would be valuable, just from hearing it? Connecting, we call it connecting and sustaining. Doesn't sound like much at first, but it is really the seed cause of a loving connection, of intimacy, of interest, of curiosity, of all the so-called awakening factors, of rapture, of great comfort and harmony and tranquility, and a sense of one-pointedness, that one point that where we begin to feel connected to everything, all of it is born of this simple movement of our attention right here and then to stay here again and again and again. And that, can be, that right here can be like this, too. It doesn't have to be like this. It can be like this and then just stay. Try it for a moment. Connect. I realized that this was really special when I did a retreat with, along with the teachers at Spirit Rock where we did this practice called dialectic inquiry, dialectic inquiry, where what we did instead of doing mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of the whole flow of experience, we did mindfulness of communication, mindfulness with another person. And over the course of five days or whatever it was, I fell in love again and again and again and again in ways that I was sometimes a little shocked at how much it, that just simple act of connecting awakened this feeling of love. And I'm sure if I connected with any one of you and stayed there for a moment, I already, attention brings affection. It's the very thing we long for. And yet, and it's something so easily overlooked that we have that capacity. Within, within our own stream of consciousness, our own, our own minds. And that's what we're doing. This is why people start to get this feeling of this kind of self-evident feeling of okayness. You know, in the midst of the not okayness, something, be, something begins to deep, deepen. And this development of what we're doing, it brings a very necessary capacity of what, 
what could be called mental strength. It arouses energy, which you need to be able to bear your life and everything that presents itself. It gives you energy, it gives you mindfulness, it gives you concentration. These are the three parts of the, the, the middle part of the, eightfold, the Noble Eightfold Path. This quality of mental strength, this ability to develop our mind. Because as we enter into this process, of coming home, of staying home. We are met, as all of you have been met, by that field of states of mind that make it feel like high drama. And those, that field of states of mind, that field of mental states that we classically call hinder, hindrances, because they hinder the the, the, uh, the, the healthy functioning of our consciousness, of our mind. They hinder the sense of well-being. They color the present moment as one that's not okay. And they hypnotize us into, into going elsewhere. And they, in some ways, uh, they some ways block are, uh, they blind our perception. They, they make us confused and they make us dull. They make us tight. Any of you experience any of those? Confused, tight, dull, and hot, irritated, angry, frustrated, bored, restless, worried. Any of you have those? One of my teachers said, the practice is easy, it's just the hindrances that are difficult. <laughs> but another teacher said, the hindrances are the practice. That is the practice. And these states of mind, so ephemeral, so empty, you can't even find them when you go looking for them. Where is it right now? Where was that last desire that you had that you were certain you could never be happy unless you fulfilled it. Where was that last torment that you had that you thought would make you a failure as a meditator for your whole life? Where are they now? Yet, when they are not met with a, with a certain strength of mind when they're not recognized, when we're absent-minded. These states of mind torment us, they, and they cloud our perception. So I want to highlight them a little bit tonight and perhaps give you some confidence that it is possible to use these very states of mind to in fact, to help you be more at home in this present moment. The five common states of mind that, that torment us, and the reason I'm using the word torment is because they, they are representations or they're qualities of, of mind that are part of a, of a uh, list called what the Buddha called kilesa, in Sanskrit, it's kilesha. And kilesa is translated loosely as defilements. But the more accurate translation is torments of the mind. And when you talk about them in this kind of technical way, it doesn't capture how absolutely nuts we get. And in fact, crazy we are. In fact, I thought that I would I forgot to do this, but I thought I would begin this evening's talk with the words of a teacher named Bhante Gunaratna, where he said, somewhere in the process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. Your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and helpless. No problem. You are not any crazier than you were yesterday. It's always been this way 
and you never noticed. The hindrances are generated. It's, a, it's an interesting thing to pay attention to. And Mary Grace alluded to this this morning when she offered in her instructions some uh, sensitivity or awareness of the different valence or feeling tone that accompanies your experience and to sometimes tune into the pleasant quality of experience and to sometimes tune into the unpleasant quality or the quality of feeling sometimes that comes with experience that's neither pleasant or unpleasant. It's, you could call this experience of this little simple feeling tone, you could call it ground zero in the, the whole creation of the drama in our minds that then makes us feel like there's something wrong, like we have to get away from here. Just as she was saying, something wrong with this moment, not enough, whatever. She was saying if it's pleasant, that little experience of liking, we tend to like it. And that liking produces a little tension, and that and tension spawns a, a, a fantasy of how we can repeat that experience, and it goes on and on and on, and it, it proliferates. When it's unpleasant, as she said, it will often trigger some disliking and then some other kind of fantasy, either to have something more pleasant or some way, strategy of getting away from that experience. And neither unpleasant or unpleasant, the tendency is just to space out and to go into unawareness, into delusion. And what follows from, the, from living in that little drama that takes place based on those seed feelings, that's why if you can, the, the idea is if you can begin to catch just the bare experience of, oh, this is pleasant or this is unpleasant, it's as though you're, the quality of attention, having attention in that moment, cuts that chain, and you no longer enter into that imaginary world of where you have to go, what you have to be, who you have to become in order to find relief. All starts with that simple moment. Because we have spent so much time in the, away from the bare experience of the flow, the ever-changing flow of pleasant and unpleasant, neither pleasant or unpleasant. doesn't sound like a very interesting area to pay attention to, but it really is exciting once you start to see how, what an important link that is in the cause of our whole experience of our existence. And when we slow down, we start to touch into that a little bit. But having missed that so many times, we have fallen into what the Buddha called the three primary misperceptions, a kind of delusion. The three misperceptions being that which is um, impermanent, we take to be permanent. That which is unreliable because it's impermanent, we take to be reliable or satisfying or satisfactory. And that which is not so personal at all, we take to be very personally because we miss the flow of experience and what's true about the flow of experience. And the whole domain, the world or the field of the hindrances is a field that's just filled, almost uh, born of, that, uh, of those three misperceptions. Again, I'll say them. What's impermanent is taken to be permanent. What is unreliable or unsatisfactory is taken to be satisfactory. What is not personal or not me and not mine is taken very personal. It's all about me. When somebody walks in the door late and you have a little aversive reaction, who is that about? Who does that become about? It doesn't, it moves beyond just sound and unpleasant. It comes aversion, dislike, and then I don't like that. They're wrecking my meditation. This is just one example of how everything gets misperceived as personal. Rather than hearing, unpleasantness, dislike, appearing, disappearing, not me, not mine. Now that doesn't sound so exciting either initially to hear something treated with a kind of coolness 
But when you begin to appreciate how bound up we can get in our reactions, and you really feel that when you're on retreat, that simple, those simple moments of being able to just hear that, that sound of someone coming in the room as hearing, and to notice the reaction in the mind as just reaction, and how if for one, moment, one little period in the span of your life you can be saved from going off in a, in a, uh, a drama about you know, what's wrong with that person and what's wrong with this place and you know, all of that, this is, a, this is a glimpse of freedom. But that's, perhaps that's to come. So the five common ways that this, these little seed reactions form into strong states of, states of mind. The first one, of course, is called the, um, is the, uh, the wanting mind. The, the mind that is in a state of desire for pleasure. Tell me if this doesn't have any kind of resonance to you. Hey Guru, this is a cartoon. Hey Guru, I've always wondered what you guys do up there on the mountain all day. Well, at sunrise I get up and eat a handful of parched corn, start meditating, and then at noon I eat another handful of parched corn and go back to meditating until dark when I stop and eat a little more parched corn. Fantastic. What do you meditate about? Espresso, <laughs> chocolate-covered raisins, pizza, french fries, hot dogs. How many of you have had hamburger go through your mind? Or pizza or something like that? Thank you. One honest person in the room. Twinkies, espresso. This is really, this is very, really dated. <laughs> it's. But the wanting mind, in all seriousness, is a um, is a trance that it's helpful to become aware of, because the it expresses itself as as hoping, expecting, waiting wanting, and usually it has some kind of object related to it that, that gives a sense of intoxication. So there is a great pleasure. Uh, in the teachings, often this word desire or tanha, craving, it's often talked about craving with delight because there's often a pleasurable feeling that comes from, from craving. It's usually because the object of our craving, and for many of you, it may be as simple as the, as the end of the sitting, the bell ringing. <laughs> I know I overdo this, because it, but it's just such an example that, that I remember from my own practice of this sense of, of being quite at ease, and then a little discomfort, and then the desire for the bell to ring. And I, of course, I have this pleasant association because the last time the bell rang, there was this sense of this lovely sound, pleasant feeling in my heart, and the tremendous relief that I felt. So from then on, the bell had become the, the secret to happiness. <laughs> of course, you can interchange any kind of object, but once that desire for the bell to ring arises, the mind is, is in a state of, I call it suspended well-being. It lies in wait. And what happens to our body as we're in that state of waiting or wanting? What happens to the, the physical organism at that moment? Is there ease? Is there increasing tension? Is there a sense of dissatisfaction? What does it do to our experience of the present moment? Present moment? 
the present moment is, as Eckhart Tolle puts it, becomes, in this case, it becomes an obstacle, becomes the enemy. He generally says the other way that present moment gets colored is as a, just a means to an end. It's some place we just pass through on our way to somewhere else. But all this very innocently happens, and if we're absent-minded, we stay completely hooked on that bell. And then the bell rings. And once again, there's that, ah. And we're certain in our confusion, in our delusion, that it was the bell that gave us the relief. And it's not unrelated, but what really gave the relief? What gave the relief was the fading away of that state of waiting. We literally want or wait our lives away. Much of the time, living much of our lives in a state of suspended well-being, tethering our sense of well-being to whether or not we get, can satisfy that desire. The Buddha called it the kind of pleasure that we seek that requires that we satisfy that hunger for something. He called that lokiya sukha, worldly happiness. Because with it comes a great sense of happiness. You get, you, we do experience a lot of pleasure when we get what we want. And so we innocently Keep, keep conditioning the same pattern. If it's not the bell, it's the end of the day, it's the weekend at work, it's the vacation, it's the person, it's whatever it is. The objects are endless. One poem talked about how they keep moving the golden dream. But what we do in meditation practice is we turn the tables on that trance, that trance of the wanting mind. The very state of mind that keeps us in a state of constriction, keeps us in a confused state that thinks that happiness depends on satisfying that hunger. Instead, we turn our attention toward that wanting mind itself. We take our attention off of the bell because the objects are endless. And at least for a time, instead of paying attention to the bell and thinking about when the, how we're going to feel when the bell rings, we pay attention. We actually feel, this is just in keeping with that, that connection that Mary Grace was encouraging with Whatever it is we're experiencing, we feel it through the body, sense whatever the permutations are of the wanting mind. Be able to say, oh, this is wanting. We use this, we use essentially, we can do basically four things. We want to recognize that feeling, that experience. We want to accept that it's there. We want to investigate it, which means we want to feel its quality. And we also want to pay attention to what happens to that feeling when we pay attention to it. And the, the last part, we don't want to identify with this feeling. We don't want to say, this is me, this is mine. We don't need to add any, we don't need to personalize it. We simply have to recognize it. You could say, like a weather front, like, a, like a, a storm that has arisen in the mind. You feel it, you notice how it behaves. And I, I will say from experience that there is no state of mind that can withstand, that is even compatible ultimately with mindful attention that eventually that state of mind, if you're not continuing to fixate on the object and on the fantasy, there's no state of mind that will last. It will reveal itself as a weather pattern, as a changing condition. It will show you directly its non-personal nature. Do you know what I mean by non-personal nature? You'll see that it just comes and it goes by itself. Nothing needs to be done to it. 
nothing needs to be undone, that everything liberates itself, everything, everything is changing. And right in the midst of the very state that tormented us when we didn't notice it, it the very state itself brings us a sense of composure, sense of balance, a sense of being home again. One less lifetime that we have to live in wait, in dissatisfaction. Now we can talk about it in this way, of, in this technical way of, yeah, you can just pay attention to the wanting mind. Sometimes it's, it's like riding a bucking bronco because our mind wants to fixate on that, that idea, or that thing or that person. All you veterans here, you know about this, but the people who are new to retreat, hold on to your seat. You may experience a classic meditation experience that we call the VR, otherwise known as Vipassana Romance, where someone in the room triggers some kind of pleasant sensation, pleasant feeling. You like the way they walk. You've snuck a glance in the dining room and you like the way they eat. <laughs> you're already gone because you, you're already noticing that they didn't take too much food. No, but your mind, your mind connects with that person, produces a pleasant feeling, and before you know it, literally within moments, you are, you are engaged in this dramatic mating dance, dating, marriage, travel, divorce, <laughs> and we can laugh about it, but sometimes it's excruciating. And I can speak from experience because I literally had, you know, one of them I kept as a visitor for really over the course of several months and finally was able to tell the person at the end of a three-month retreat that she was my VR. Well, it's happened several times, but one time, <laughs> one time the person was, I was certain that I was interrupting the person's practice and she was completely oblivious to me. Another time I actually became quite good friends with, uh, with one of the people. I, I had created this relationship in my mind, but once you're caught in that trance, you really believe that that object is the secret to happiness. And this is a fundamental delusion. There's so, I could, my mind is cascading with lots and lots of stories about how I've gotten tripped up by this, this wanting mind. Just so you know that there is a flip side, which I'm sure many of you, and especially is common on the second day of a retreat, it's called the VV, which is another uh, initials for Vipassana Vendetta. <laughs> Where someone really triggers that unpleasant feeling because of your conditioning, and that's not so easily noticed, the, just the bare unpleasantness. The chain has not been cut by mindfulness. Instead, it proliferates into high drama of how that person's the cause of, of all your misery or that food or that teacher or whatever it is. And, and it it's classically expresses itself as the complaining mind or the, the judging mind and so much, so much projection of that, of that um, unpleasantness onto other people. And of course, it also... The VV often is ourselves, and it, it's so painful. This is why it's so important to, in addition to this developing this strength of mind, it's to develop that tender-hearted mercy and kindness for the conditioning that presents itself in our mind. Those unbidden moments of judging and condemning and making such a case against ourselves. This is all... Um, this is all needs to be met with, with kindness because we really can't help 
what arises up to this point. Remember, if you want to understand your past, look at your present condition. These are seeds planted long before we knew what was happening, even the seeds of the judging mind. The good news is we can begin to make that shift from being, from being caught in that trance, that VV toward ourselves or someone else, with, to begin to withdraw our attention from the story and the ideas or the person or the situation and feel that sense of, of contraction, of ill will, of, of burning, of turbulence, and begin to, to let yourself feel the impact of, of that kind of ill will. And that's um, what, what helps our experience become the cause and condition for uh, kindness and compassion. As long as we stay in the story and the objects of ill will, we just keep getting tighter and tighter and tighter. So this is one another way that we can turn the, turn the tables on these trances of the mind. We bring them right into the light of attention. Even ill will, even aversion, the flip side of desire, expresses itself as fear of pulling away, aggression, of boredom, of irritation, of rage when it expresses itself as a very strong emotion. Like anything, it's still ultimately a changing condition. It's not personal. It comes of itself. It goes. Uh, and the light of attention can help us to see it for what it is. So you can see with everything that I describe, everything that we describe, what we're doing is we're not deleting any experience. We're not getting rid of, we're not suppressing, we're not acting out, we're not feeding. What we're doing is we're sitting in the middle. We're finding a middle way where we, where we use that experience for our understanding, for our compassion, for, for our anchor to this present moment, why everything is an equal opportunity. Everything begins to strengthen the light of attention. Because the more we pay attention, the brighter and brighter your mind gets. It's as though everything that you can pay attention to, it's like rubbing two sticks together, and it produces a kind of brightness. And when our mind becomes really bright, using everything as a, a doorway to that brightness. I hope this makes sense. As our mind gets bright, as we, as we wake up to what's there, it's then possible to really see clearly what's going on. There's a passage that I think of when I say this. It's from, from the Buddha where he says, luminous is the mind, brightly shining, but it is colored by these defilements that visit. The unlearned person, the non-yogi, you could say, doesn't understand this, so they don't cultivate their mind. But he goes on, he says, luminous is the mind, brightly shining, and it is untouched by these defilements that visit it. What happened to the Buddha, you could say, is he began Instead of following every one of these desires, the personification of Mara said that Mara kept coming to visit the Buddha, even after his awakening. Mara came to the Buddha and said, you know, you should be out having a good time. You should figure out a way to get to Woodacre and see if there's any good treats over there. Or whatever. Mara came and tried to entice the Buddha to, to get off his seat, to do something else. His, brought out his to-do list. Did any of you have that yet since you got here? Said, you know, it would be okay to check my email today, just once. But the more the Buddha developed that strength of mind, every time he saw Mara, he'd say, I see you, Mara. And the more he saw Mara, the stronger and steadier he became, using the very thing that would, in absent-mindedness, torment him. 
or it torment anyone else. And eventually, he saw all the same experiences that, that we all see as we sit on retreat. We're doing the exact same thing. He faced the, the music of, of such a, that which is so difficult to bear about being in a body. He faced the, the constant movement of, of sensation and movements of mood and movements of thought and movements of all these mental states. The, the more he paid attention, the brighter he got. And a funny thing happened right in the middle of his meeting with Mara. The less he, the less he, the more aware he became of Mara, the less he reacted to Mara. The less he reacted to Mara, the more he began to feel this great joy of not being so reactive. The same mental states were still coming, the same thoughts, same sensations, the same ups and downs, but his mind became less and less caught up in it. He saw everything that comes into my mind. These mental states are changing conditions. They're not mine. They're not me. They're empty. They're insubstantial. What's all the fuss about? VR, VV. It's not, you know, I can make it sound a lot easier than it is. We're, we're in training. But the more he saw everything come and go, and his mind didn't move toward or away, he realized there's a sense of well-being here, a different kind of well-being. Not the well-being that I described before, the, what he called that lokiya sukha, worldly happiness. Another translation, or another way he described worldly happiness, so thing, that pleasure that we get when all, with all the wonderful pleasures of our life, he also called it uh, the happiness of bondage, happiness of slavery, because we tend to be a slave to the, to the next experience. We tend to make it our devotion and have our sense of well-being so dependent on things that don't really last very long. But in this moment, he realized everything was not lasting, coming, going, but he was, he was experiencing well-being that didn't depend on what was happening, didn't depend on satisfying any kind of hunger, getting rid of anything, getting more of something. It was the natural joy of a mind that's, not, uh, that's just resting in itself. It's just here. And that's literally what we're training, using everything to help us train ourselves to be able to meet the joys and the sorrows and not be blown so much by the, those winds, those inevitable worldly winds what the Buddha called the eight worldly winds of praise and blame, gain and loss, so much loss, fame and shame, pleasure and pain. Inevitable in everyone's life. This is dukkha. This is how it is. It's universal. Everybody has these. As Rumi says, uh, good and bad are mixed. If you don't have both, you're not one of us. And in that same poem, he says, the cure for pain is in the pain. So we open to it as it is. This is exactly what the Buddha encouraged in his first teaching on the Four Noble Truths. He said, there is stress in our lives. There is that which is difficult to bear. There's stress in being born. There's stress in getting old. There's stress in getting sick. There's stress in dying. There's stress in not getting what you want. There's stress in not wanting what you get. We, we, every day we have some kind of frustrated desire. Every day we have some kind of wounded pride and it makes us irritated. This is human nature. And he said, we need to look at this. We need to actually welcome it. And to be able to acknowledge, this is, the, this is my condition. Now, what happens when I welcome it and acknowledge it? I'm led naturally into the second truth. The cause of, of suffering want things to be different than the way they are. Contentiousness with reality. I want to become different. I want to get somewhere. I want to get rid of something. When we open to our life the way it is, we come to naturally to his, the Buddha's prescription for this second truth, this cause of suffering, which is to abandon it, to let it go. 
we relinquish that cause of suffering. We let go. That's why everything is about letting go of non-grasping, of non-contentiousness. The way Ajahn Chah put it, many of you probably heard or read this before, says, do everything with a mind that lets go. If you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. And you can hear in that, it doesn't say the world comes to an end. It says your struggles with the world come to an end. The struggles with the world are born of, our, of the reactions in our minds, of, of grasping and aversion expressing themselves in these two first hindrances of, of desire for pleasure and the second one, aversion, the avoidance of, of uh, trying to get rid of the unpleasant. Otherwise, we end up in a state of incessant wanting. We end up like the character that's often spoken about here, a character in an advertisement named Spence, who Spence, who's pictured in this particular advertisement in front of a bunch of stuff with a big, uh, big fancy automobile in the back. It says, Spence put a new twist on an old philosophy. To be one with everything, he says, you've got to have one of everything. <laughs> You know, I can't even read it anymore. It's, it's, but you get, the, you get the point. This is the way our, our mind generates. Because once you, once you feed that wanting mind, it produces a pleasant feeling. That pleasant pleasure passes. It leaves a little residue of, oh, gone. And what does our mind usually do at that moment? We generate another one. And this just keeps us on this wheel the same thing with, uh, with our aversion and ill will. This is what one person a long time ago said, in America I've seen the freest and best educated men in the circumstances the happiest to be found in the world, yet it seemed to me that the, a cloud habitually hung on their brow, and they seemed almost sad in their pleasure because they never stopped thinking of the good things they have not yet got. Alexis de Tocqueville. To pay attention to the aversive mind here, the way that a moment of irritation can then foment into a, an internal drama, it can be very interesting. It can be ultimately when we can make that shift from being lost in it to noticing it, it can become a great source of humor. You might get a feeling for it, your own version of it, uh, based on this little story. A woman wanted some potatoes for a meal she was cooking. She wants a some potatoes for a meal she's cooking, so she sends her husband to the marketplace to buy potatoes. As he walks out the door, she calls after him. Be sure and get a good price. So all the way to the marketplace, the man is thinking about potatoes and what he'll have to pay. If he buys the best potatoes, he knows he'll have to pay more than if he buys the lesser quality. On the other hand, a lesser quality potato is just that. That's no good. In fact, he knows he'll have to be careful in buying the other, other than top-priced potatoes because the seller, this is the seed cause here, the seller might try to stick him with a bad potato, even a rotten potato. When he thinks, now this started with a thought, when he thinks of someone cheating him by giving him a rotten potato, he gets really mad. <laughs> Quote, why do people have to be so greedy as to stick me with a rotten potato? Just at that point, he reaches the stall of the potato seller and screams at him, you can keep your rotten potatoes, and he, and he walks off. So another state of mind that is born commonly of this um, what the Buddha called misplaced faith in what's next, in pleasure or getting rid of pain, is the state of mind of restlessness 
and worry that comes also in the, often in the form of agitation or anxiety. And this is what it's usually associated when our mind is, um, our mind then just starts to project, once it starts projecting our sense of well-being onto the future or lack of well-being in the future, I think all of us are experts at worry. But if we begin to pay attention to the state of mind itself and the way it spawns a whole drama, you can see the way it's always about, especially worry, it's always about, or that kind of fear that comes, it's always about the future, it's not about right now. And because we're tethering, we're associating our well-being with how things turn out tomorrow, we, are, we put ourselves in a state of vulnerability. We tell ourselves that I can't be happy now. It all depends on how things turn out. And because, of course, we know that the future is unborn, we have no idea. We, our mind spins in a state of, of, uh, of agitation. And this is so innocent as well because most of us have our sense of well-being tethered to something in the future. Our future success, our future enlightenment even. And to the degree that our mind dwells on it, it just generates a lot of restlessness and agitation and worry. So as much as possible in our practice, we notice the story of worry, but we let it be the reminder one way of talking about it, the reminder of our love of being present. And instead of making that whole drama about happiness to be found in the future, making that real, or unhappiness to be found in the future, this entering into that whole imaginary world called future, instead, we let ourselves feel that sense of restlessness and agitation. We turn the tables on it, the very state that spawns so much uh, projection into, the, into our imagination, the very state brings us back to reorient us to this present moment. And of course, it's not so easy to be with restlessness and agitation. So sometimes we need antidotes. We may need to give our mind a big pasture, make our, our view very wide. We may need to do some more, we may need to walk a little more briskly. We may need to really soften our awareness. We may need to really spend a lot of time bringing loving kindness and, kind and tenderness to ourselves, but all in the service of reorganizing ourselves toward finding relief right here, not in the imagined future. We tend to do the same thing with projections on the, um, on the past, into the past, trying to, with a lot, it comes with a lot of regret and trying to retrace, replay, you know, all of that, as though we can control what's already gone, what's already back with the pharaohs. So instead, we come, try to come out of the narrative of that and feel that sense of guilt, regret, whatever it is that's produce, that produces that feeling of, of uh, restlessness and agitation. Often, boredom has a quality of restlessness to it. So it's just to hover a little bit in that environment of these states of mind, how they're felt through the body, and we'll discover what the, what the flavor of it is. Is it boredom? Is it regret? Is it worry? Is it, what, it, what is this? And we feel it, but ultimately we recognize it as a, another weather front. Not me, not mine. We don't need to build a whole monument to it. It does not define us. It's a changing condition. As Hafiz says in his poem called Find a Better Job, now that all your worry has proved to be such an unlucrative business, why not find a better job? <laughs> Fourth quality I won't go into tonight. I'll mention it more tomorrow morning, but sloth and torpor, we've talked about it already. The, the swamp mind, the dullness, 
the, it's often, often very prominent the first few days. It's not personal. It's not your fault. You're not your fault, as a friend Wes says. It's a state of mind that comes sometimes as, a, as avoidance, sometimes as a, an imbalance that's inevitable in practice between energy and tranquility. When you have tranquility and not a lot of energy, we often joke that it looks like the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. And that's how the wall, that's how the hall looks a lot in the, some of the late afternoon sittings. So we can see for ourselves that sometimes we just need to arouse a little energy and we walk a little faster. We do various things. We take a little more precise posture, especially if you're sitting on a chair, you sit on the edge of the chair, you don't slink back into it. There's so many things. Traditional pull on your ears, uh, splash water on the face, look up at a light, open your eyes really wide, so many different things. But we work with it. Sometimes just being mindful of it and its quality. Sometimes it, especially if it's not really based on being tired, sometimes it just bursts and it opens us up to a whole, whole new reservoir of energy. Perhaps the most undermining of all the mental states that entrances us into, uh, into a, a really deep sense of deflation and, and loss of confidence is the state of mind of doubt. And it's too bad because I could give a whole discourse on doubt and confusion. And, and people have described, I don't know what to do. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know. These teachers, they look just as neurotic as I do. They, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. <laughs> whatever it is, whatever, it, whatever uncertainty in the mind, whatever, whatever skeptical doubt, whatever starts going in your mind, that can just start with a seed moment of something unpleasant again. And it, a simple moment of unpleasant or the mind not doing exactly what you want it to do. It's very tied into the other hindrances. In fact, when they all come together, we call it a multiple hindrance attack. We want something, it's not happening, we get really irritated, and then we try harder, and then we get exhausted, and then we get really restless and agitated, and then we start feeling a lot of doubt about what we're doing, and everything, it gets projected on everything, and pretty soon you started with a little unpleasant experience in your body, and it turned into an indictment of your whole life, and, and why you'll never be happy. We laugh about it, but that's how our mind can do that. What we try to do in our practice is come out of that narrative of doubt, feel that, recognize that state of doubt, accept that this is doubt. See how it behaves, what happens to it as we feel it. Recognize that it's not me, it's not mine. It's, it's just, a, it's a state of mind. Make that same shift that the Buddha did sitting under the Bodhi tree, where he no longer pushed away, no longer grasped, no longer identified with what was arising and passing. And as he relaxed in that great joy of equanimity, of non-reactiveness, filled with all the feelings of life, but not blown over by them, as he relaxed into that, in a flash of insight, his mind opened. And in that flash of insight, he realized the very refuge that he had searched for, for all his practice, that all of us long for, that sense of relief, is none other than our own mind, right here. Don't look for anything but this. So we have a real opportunity. Every moment is either a seed that plants the seed of freedom and a sense of being at home, or as Rumi puts it, or as Hafiz puts it, he says, you, you carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Don't mix them. You have all the genius to build a swing in your backyard to the divine. That sounds like a hell of a lot more fun. Let's start laughing, drawing blueprints, gathering our talented friends. I will help you with a divine lyre and drum. Hafiz will sing a thousand words you can take into your hands, like golden saws, silver hammers, polished teakwood, strong silk rope. You carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix them, mix them. 
So let's sit. beings recognize the five hindrances and put them to good use. Thank you for your attention. Have about 25 minutes or so for walking practice. Please plant the seeds. Really stay with it. Take your time. Take an interest in what your mind tells you that it would rather be doing. Stop, feel that for a moment. Don't let your mind take you out of your seat. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.